0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Mark 9, verses 14 through 50, and then our text is from Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. After the proclamation of God's Word, we'll praise God with the words of Psalm 128, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. As we read from Mark 9, we're particularly interested, given our text, in the interactions that our Lord Jesus has with with children. Mark 9, verse 14, hear the Word of God. This is right after the transfiguration. Hear the Word of God. And when He came to the disciples, He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with, him, with them. Immediately when they saw Him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to Him, greeted Him. And He asked the scribes, "'What are you discussing with them?' Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should, not, they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, "O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him, this boy, to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit came out, convulsed him greatly, came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. "'For He taught His disciples and said to them, "'The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, "'and they will kill Him, and after He's killed, "'He will rise the third day.' "'But they did not understand this saying, "'and were afraid to ask Him. "'Then He came to Capernaum, "'and when He was in the house, He asked them, "'What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road?' "'But they kept silent, for on the road "'they had disputed among themselves "'who would be the greatest?' And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took, again, a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can, come, can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, Assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor... How will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Then we move to our text, verse 13 of chapter 10, where God's word reads, Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and laid his hands on them and blessed this is the Word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so tell me, did your pastor do something wrong this morning when he baptized his son? Do our pastors do wrong things when they baptize children? You're probably aware that there are many in our day who would argue that we really ought not to be doing that because, you see, you don't know whether Isaiah Drew believes yet. And you won't know that until he is an adult, and so you really shouldn't be doing this yet. It's a point of controversy not without effect upon our communities, but it seems to me that there really are two questions that are wrapped up in this point of controversy. The one question is the question, what do sacraments do? Are they instruments whereby we say something to God, professing our faith, acknowledging who we now are? Or are they something in which God says something to us and gives us His promises and gives us His blessings and embraces us? You will feel it already just by the phrasing of the questions that certainly the latter is much more meaningful and significantly. It's certainly wonderful when God says things to us and gives us promises. What does it mean? I mean, it's good for me to say something to God and for you to say something to God and profess our faith, but we are much more fickle than God is, and we cannot live on the basis of our fickle moments. But we can live on the basis of the grace and the goodness of God. But the second point of discussion underlying this controversy really is, what position do children have in the covenant community? What position do children have here in this church and here among you? There really are only two choices. Either people are in or they are out. And to understand the difference, you can think, for example, of your neighbors and, and those you come into contact with. If they know you are Christ, if you know that they are Christians, people who understand the principles of the faith, then you can have one kind of discussion with them, and you'll have to introduce many aspects of that Christian faith if you, you will not have to. Introduce many of those aspects because you know they're Christians. You can have one kind of discussion with them because they have the same bond of faith. But if you don't know they're Christians, you have to have another kind of discussion. You have to tell them about who Jesus is and who God is. You have to have a discussion about creation and whatever else. That's what happens. Well, what kind of discussions? How do you relate to your children? Do you speak to them as if they are unbelievers, outside the community, or do you speak to them as if they are believers who are part of the community, who have the same challenge that all of us as adults have? We need to believe, and we need to repent, and to change, and to walk humbly before our God. Well, what about our children then? What circle do they belong in? Are they out there in the circle of those who do not believe, are in or in the circle of those who embrace and know God? Well, later scriptures certainly suggests that they are in that circle of those who acknowledge and know God. Very significant day, the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up. And instead of declaring some major rift and some major change between the old and new covenant community, he says, the promise is to you and to your children. Many things will change, says Peter, as of this day of Pentecost, but this remains the same. Your kids have the promises of God, just as the kids of our fathers had the promises of God. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 about those who who were married to unbelievers, and then he talks about their children, and he says 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 that they are holy, holy even when only one partner in this marriage believes. It doesn't necessarily mean they're converted, but it means what holy always means in the Scriptures. They are separated and they are dedicated to God. Unclean things, fabrics, metals, the like, become holy things when they are brought into the temple and are dedicated to God. So to here. Can it be that kids are holy and yet outside the covenant community? Of course not. And so, too, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, very striking, this alone should decide the question because he writes to the saints who are at Ephesus, that is, to the holy people who are at Ephesus. And then when he gets to chapter 6, he addresses the children. Obviously, they're a part of that group as well. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Very strikingly, he he talks to the children and talks about their, their relationship in the Lord. He talks to the parents and he talks about their relationship with their children as being a relationship in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he tells the fathers to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Not just your training, your instruction, your ideas, but the training and instruction of the Lord because they are in the Lord. Fathers and mothers can address them in the Lord and children need to respect them in the Lord. Christian parents don't speak to their children as they might speak to unbelieving neighbors, but they speak to them as people who belong in that privileged circle of believers and as they grow up, they build on, the, uh, on, on, on the, re- the remarks and the responses of faith. As simple as it may be, they build on that until we come to adulthood. And so too, well, Peter and Paul said these things. What about our Lord Jesus? What about Mark 10 then? and Does that not fit it right in with the uh, remarks of Peter and Paul? No, the passages of, uh, of the Gospels that speak about Jesus blessing the children, they don't prove infant baptism, but they certainly prove and show that the Lord Jesus embraces children and He considers them part of this community and He gets rather annoyed when the disciples think they're not part of this community. It shows that Jesus is in one line with the Old Covenant and one line with Peter and Paul about how we ought to see children. And so God's Word comes to you this morning under this theme. The Lord of the church embraces covenant children. We'll see that the kingdom belongs to the children and the kingdom belongs to the childlike. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest American Reformed theologians of the 19th century Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield once preached on this text. And towards the beginning of that sermon, which we still have today, he says that one of the things we need to do from the very beginning with this passage is just stop and adore and love our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what a picture we have here of the Master's loving kindness Surely it is not strange if when we read the narrative, we stop, first of all, to adore and love Him. It's a revelation of the character of Jesus, and what can we contemplate with more benefit than the character of Jesus? Because what happens here? People are bringing their children to Rabbi Jesus, but the disciples are stopping them and rebuking them. What motivated the disciples? Did they think the children did not belong, were not important to the Lord? Or did they think Jesus was too busy for kids? We aren't told, but Jesus rebukes the disciples. He says, let the children come. Do not hinder them. And to be sure, it's not the first time that our Lord Jesus shows Himself inclined to pause and take time for children. The disciples could have anticipated this this reaction of our Lord because did you notice… Our, our Mark 9, it begins with this majestic, we didn't read this piece, but you know the piece about the, the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus on the mountain, Moses and Elijah, those two great figures of the old covenant, they come, and, and they're, 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 Jesus shines like like a like sun, and Peter says his babbling words, it's a, man, it's a moment of glory, and then right after that moment of glory, Jesus is coming down from the mountain, and what does He do? Who does He spend time with, this glorious person? He spends time immediately with children. He has his eye on this child and he wants to heal this child and he does so. The Lord must have big things on his mind. It was a message on the mountain about suffering and death, but the Lord stops to take care of a child. And what happens? Because what happens? He meets this large crowd and he stops with his man and his boy. The foot of the mountain. He who has come to restore all things has just had this discussion about this very purpose of His, stops here to restore the health of a boy. Surely this means blessed are the children. And when the disciples are busy with that favorite pastime of theirs, arguing about who is the greatest among them, who is the guy who's going to get the best job in the new kingdom, what does He do? He takes a little child and He says, Brothers, you've got to become like this. It means blessed are the childlike. And right after that, he speaks about those who cause little ones who believe in him to sin. He says if anyone does that, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. It means cursed are those who abuse children, And lead them astray. It means the church should not be the last, but the church should be the first to see that this is horrendous stuff. The Lord of the church, the King of the world, will not tolerate this. And besides that, there also seems to be even a Jewish background to what the the parents are doing when they're bringing their children to Jesus There is this big Jewish book we have today, it's called the Mishnah, and it contains all kinds of Jewish rules and regulations that probably were alive and well in the days of our Lord Jesus. And according to one of those chapters in that book, it was the custom of the Jewish parents to bring their children to the scribes on the eve of the Day of Atonement. And they would bring them to the scribes in order that the the scribes might lay their hands on the children in blessing and in prayer so that the children might one day attain to the knowledge of the law and of good works. So probably the parents are acknowledging something of the authority and the greatness of Rabbi Jesus, and they are seeking His blessing over their children. But the disciples don't see much merit in this. The Lord Jesus has more important things to do than to bother with children. But see now how our Lord reacts when He realizes this is what's happening. In Mark's Gospel, it says in verse 19, when Jesus saw it, He was greatly displeased and said, let the little children come to Me and do not forbid that. And then notice several surprising things about how our Lord relates to these children. Notice that He gives to these children three things they need the most also today. First of all, He gives them time. The disciples thought Jesus was too busy for children. He had no time for them. It's the disease that you and I have. When life gets busy, the little ones are the ones who get shortchanged. When you and I run out of time, we take it from our children, thinking these insignificant ones won't notice anyway. But our Lord Jesus doesn't share that attitude. Children are not marginal to him. He takes out time for them. He even emphasizes it with a double command. Let the children come. Do not forbid them. And notice the second gift our Lord gives them. Besides the gift of time, he also gives them the gift of touch. Think of it, is it not true when children are touched appropriately, there's a message that goes out again when it's appropriate touch. Um, It's a message of love and affection, a message which tells them that they count, that they matter. Touch and affection go together, do they not? Well, our Lord understood that long ago. Mark says in verse 16, he took the children in his arms. Arms. He embraced them. It says again, they count, they matter to him. Actually, of course, our Lord does much more than just touch these children. All three gospels tell us that he lay his hands upon them. And that's even better than your touch or my touch. That's the touch of blessing. Think of the significance of that. It means to receive a blessing from no one less than the Lord Jesus Himself. Think of it, how many people in the Gospels were not healed by His touch? Jesus' touch brought sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and healing to all kinds of sick. Matthew tells us in chapter 14, they brought all their sick to Him and begged Him to let the sick just touch the edge of His cloak and all who touched Him were healed. Well, these children are even richer and they don't have to struggle to touch Jesus' He embraces them, touches them, and blesses them. Think of the tremendous role that blessing plays in the Old Testament. Think of how we are reminded again and again that children are a blessing and need a blessing. And you see it. Jesus is in one line with the Old Testament ways. And we must remember here that you, to you and me, a blessing might be an empty symbol A routine gesture. How much thought do we give to it when at the end of the service we have a blessing? But not to the Jews. Not so to Jesus. Blessings are powerful and effective. They transfer gifts. They change lives. The blessing of God is what we're all dependent on, are we not? Unless the Lord blesses the house, the laborers labor in vain. There's still a third thing that children need. Matthew is the only one who actually mentions it in chapter 19. But it goes together with blessing. Maybe it's a part of it and it's prayer. Besides time and touch, they need prayer. Isn't it true? Prayer is the best thing we can do for our children. Prayer is not a last resort when everything else fails. Prayer is first. Prayer is the best. Matthew says that children were brought to Jesus, that He might lay His hands on them and pray. And there is nothing in any of these texts which suggests that Jesus did not do exactly that. If it's the same event, we know He did exactly that. How delightful it is, Jesus takes these little ones and lifts them up before the Father in heaven above, What Jesus does today for His people, He was doing already there in His own life, His earthly ministry for the little ones among the people of God. Calvin is the one who summarizes it best for us, he says, about this. It is not without reason that we employ this passage as a shield against the Anabaptists. Those Anabaptists, those were the ones in that day who who said that kids didn't count and don't you dare baptize them. This text, he says, is a shield against all their nonsense. Calvin says, by embracing them, he testified that they were reckoned by Christ among His flock. About the laying on of hands, he says, from this we infer that His grace is extended even to those who are of that age says, Calvin, Jesus laying on of hands was certainly no frivolous or empty symbol, nor did Christ pour forth his prayers into the empty air, but he could not solemnly present the infants to God without giving them purity. And what was his prayer for them but that they might be received among the children of God? So do you see then how a passage like this ought to cause us to stop and adore and love our Lord Jesus? You and I may have our priorities all mixed up, but not our Lord Jesus. This world might say kids don't count, but the Lord doesn't share that approach. So draw the conclusion with Jesus, with Peter, with Paul. They're saying children belong. If children belong, should they not get the mark of belonging? What's the mark of belonging? Today it's called baptism. And why should we think that on this point He has changed today? Is it not still His will that parents seek a blessing from Him for their children? Will He deny to us what He gave to them? Are we in the new covenant poorer than those in the old covenant? If they counted then, why should they not count today? So we say this to the children and to the young people among us. Don't ever think that you, don't only, you only count when you get older. Don't, only think, don't ever think that it's only after profession of faith that you belong to the Lord and need to serve Him. You are His. You need to serve Him every day of your life. The promises are yours. The blessings are yours. And the call, the call you receive is exactly the same call that your parents receive. The call to believe and the call to repent. The call to live out of the grace of God and, and to live right with Him. You don't postpone that until you're 18 years old. You do it every day. You must do it every day. You must do it every Lord's Day as you come before God. The Lord Jesus showed by His actions then, and it's still true today, that each one, even those who cannot yet hear and believe and understand, they count. They matter to this God. That was always God's way. What would come of the whole Old Covenant era uh, if it didn't go from generation to generation to generation to generation? That has been the predominant way. Yes, He lets others in by His grace. And yes, we should welcome others. We should welcome all kinds of people from everywhere. But when we welcome them, we welcome their children. Because that's the kind of God we got. And parents, sure, it's hard. It's hard to raise those children, to direct them in the ways of the Lord. And it's expensive to do that. But aren't we reminded by this? What do we confess our Lord does today in the heavens? Don't we confess that He prays for us? He's the great intercessor, the great high priest. Well, does this passage not remind us, even as He prays for for you and me, he, He prays for our children, He prays for our grandchildren. This is the very thing that He's doing today. How do I know that? Because that's what He did when He walked on the face of the earth. He prayed for the children of the covenant. Do you think that maybe from heaven above He forgets about our kids and our struggles with them? Would he forget in heaven the very thing that he was zealous about on earth? Of course not. Here we are reminded he helps and his blessings are very real. So we say this to David and Erica and to all parents. You make promises today, but you can do that only on the basis of God's promise to you. And you can go forward only on the basis of the strength of God's promise to you. It's not a matter of being a minister. It's not a matter of being a professor. It's not a matter of whatever you are. It's a matter of the promises of God. If we don't lean on that, we lean on nothing. Only by grace and through Christ alone. It reinforces our second point. We see not only that the kingdom belongs to the children, we also see the kingdom belongs to the childlike. Because notice what else our Lord does in verse 15. Who he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. What is the point? Well, if you read the Gospel of Mark by itself as one continuous book, and that's actually how you should read the Gospels. You should take an evening and read uh, the whole Gospel of Mark. You can easily do it in the evening. And take another evening and read the whole Gospel of Matthew and the whole Gospel of Luke. And as you do so, underline some pieces, mark them up and whatever else. Trace some themes. Because if you trace a theme in Mark's Gospel, then one of the most major themes is the the theme which which says... Does anyone know who Jesus is? Very strikingly, at the very beginning of the book, there are some who know very well who Jesus is. Namely, the demons know who Jesus is. And that's why already in the first chapter, Jesus shuts up the demons. He tells them, don't speak again. Don't tell anybody who I am, because they know it. But he wants to know whether anybody else is going to figure out who he is. That's the drama, the dramatic storyline of Mark's gospel. Does anyone else know what the demons know? And the point here is if anyone is going to get the answer right, they're going to have to have the attitude of a child. They're going to have to have the faith of a child. It's apparent that it's especially the faith of a child that is being praised here. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Already here we are being told access to the kingdom comes not by works. It comes not by degree of maturity. It comes not by degree of wisdom. It comes by faith of grace. The simplicity of a childlike faith is elevated. You see, it's still true today. Children properly instructed will believe. In the process of growing up, they might waver and be tossed to and fro, but children, they will believe. Who can ever tell a story about about a child sitting on their mother's lap and your mom is reading or dad is reading about Adam and Eve or about Noah and the ark and Jonah and the fish. And did you ever hear of a child turning around and say, ah, oh, come on, mom, that can't be true. Now, a child will believe. A child will say it's true. It's true because mom said it was true, and it's true because this book said it was true, and therefore it's true. The approach of a child is precisely that. These are the, these are the, the confidence-based Things that we base our faith upon. And that's what our Lord is talking about. It's in this respect we have to become childlike in our faith. We have to be, have faith like a little child. And, you know, if you really take all the words of our Lord Jesus at face value, then we have to say that the great question of the Gospels is not whether children belong to the kingdom, but the greater question seems to be here is, are there any adults here? It's very striking in the Gospels, there's not one time that our Lord puts children down. Throughout the Gospel, the message of this passage is being referred to such, to persons like this belongs the kingdom of heaven. I think of a passage like Matthew 11, where he speaks to adults and he tells them a very hard truth, hard for proud adults to accept. He says, The things of God are hidden from the wise and the learned but they are revealed to little children. And how often don't we hear him taking a child and putting that child in the midst of the learned scribes and Pharisees and the others, and he says, this is your model. Unless you turn and become like this child, you will never even enter the kingdom. So too later in his final days, when it's it's the adults who, who want to crucify him. And when he comes into Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey, who is it that's crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David? It's the children. Chief priests and scribes are indignant. Jesus says it's music to his ears. Jesus says, have you never read in your Old Testament from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? It means even the praise of children is a blessed thing to our Lord. The strange truth of the gospel, hard for us adults uh, to, uh, to accept, but the strange truth of the gospels is when you read a gospel like Mark, you actually see children believing long before you ever see any adults believe. When you read all the Gospels, it's it's the adults who are to model themselves after the children. Covenant children are the ones who teach us faith and trust and humility. But the adults, covenant adults, are the ones who reject Him and want to crucify Him. The adults are the ones who opposed Him their whole life long and caused Him so much grief. They were the ones who nailed Him to the cross. Why, when you take a look at it all, you might very well be inclined to ask, whether there were any adults admitted to the covenant circle. If you took an inventory of who believed and who didn't, you would say, all these children are there, but are there any adults? The great problem of the Gospels is not childhood. The problem is adulthood. The problem is not that children cannot be adults. The problem is it's difficult for adults to be childlike and to trust like a child. And to have faith like a child, and humility before a glorious and gracious God. Humility like a child. You know, people sometimes accuse us of teaching a version of presumptive regeneration. I mean it's rather ironic. Abraham Caper supposedly taught uh, you should baptize on the basis of presumptive regeneration. We left the in our our fathers left that whole history because we said that's nonsense. But they say to us today, you know, the problem with you Canadian foreign people is you, you presume your children are regenerate. And I say, nonsense. But you see, that, that's the wrong question. What are you going to do? Presume your children are regenerate? No, your children have, the, have the, same, the same challenge as the adults have. They have to believe and they have to repent when they sin. But we don't presume the regenerate. We, we take a lot of stock in God's promises, but we also don't presume they're unregenerate like some other people do. I can't baptize them because they're unregenerate. We don't, we don't live on the horns of this dilemma. We see them as covenant children who are given promises by God. And because they're given promises of God, parents can take those children and say when they're babies, God, you promised. And they can take them when they're adults and and when they're older and say, God, you promised. You can take them when they're 40 years old and you can say, God, you promised. They're still alive. Let the gospel speak to them. You promised. And God's promises are always true. And you always can embrace those promises. The great challenge of growing up in the church is not will the kids believe. The great challenge of the the church is what will happen to these delightful, wonderful children who so wonderfully and enthusiastically believe as they become adults and think they're sophisticated and think they know better and then they get educated and they think they even know better will they maintain the simplicity, the faith, the humility of childhood? That must be there for each and every one of us. And that's the way for David and Erica and for every believer who receives children Teach them, show them, be an example to them. You can speak wonderfully to your unbelieving neighbor about the grace and love of God, but when you address your children, there's more to build on. You can build with a firm basis because you have the the promises of God. You, you can say, Isaiah, you are the privileged and recipient of the promises of the triune God, his covenant and its promises, his care and his protection. His son gave his blood for you, his spirit lives in you. They are yours. And you, just like your mom and your dad, your whole life long, have to embrace that with the simplicity of faith, with the attitude of grace, and a heart of love that comes in Jesus Christ, your Lord. Amen.